This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today on Soundbites, we look at Whole Foods, which was accused of price gouging. We'll talk about that in the second half of our show with Denzel Mitchell. But first, we're about to have a conversation with Michael Twitty culinary historian of African and African-American foodways, blogger at Afro-Culinaria, who uh, wrote this piece in The Guardian on barbecue, the all-American food. The title of the article is, Barbecue is an American Tradition of Enslaved Africans and Native Americans. And uh, we'll talk about that and how one simple article has caused such a bloody uproar. Michael Twitty, welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, it's great to be back, Mark. <laughs> so before we get to the uproar, Barbecue is one of those things that is really American. People see it as an American cuisine. Right. Right? And as this other woman wrote your piece, there are like four major styles of barbecue in America, but everybody claims theirs is the original and the best. Um, but you opened your article with barbecue is a form of cultural power and is intensely political. Mm-hmm. The, the culture that r- rules like no other American culinary tradition, sauce or no sauce. Let's get into that. What does that mean? It means that barbecue has been it, 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 it's it's all it's inherently a product of you know conflict, politics, strife, survival. All those ideas are in there. Um, southern barbecues, from the colonial to the antebellum, through through even up to you know. Um, even into the 20th century, have been used as were political events. They weren't just parties, okay? They were political events. Um, and for the people who, with whom the roots of barbecue lie, you know, barbecue was a communal event to plan, to arrange, to revolt, to rebel. So it's not, I want to first of all make sure people understand when we talk about barbecue, we're not saying barbecue equals cooking over a fire. That's idiocy. Many Everybody cooks over a fire. And by the way, if we use the definition, black people would still be the first people on earth cooking over a fire. Thank you very much. So, yeah, you can play that game all you want, commenters. But um, we would still be the first people on earth cooking over a fire. But barbecue is not cooking over a fire. Barbecue is a very specific tradition, and um, you can see the politics of barbecue in itself. You know, these rules and these things, this is because too many men have fixed with it. And it's very masculine, and it's very testosterone-driven, despite the fact that I have some friends who are changing that. It's it's very much a very male-oriented conflict sort of puffing-your-chest kind of food. So it is, it's interesting, but a couple of things you just said here. I want to come back to these things. These are really important. Um, uh, when we, I want to get the whole question as being a, a, a masculine, a, a male form of cooking. But, I mean, barbecue in itself, I mean, just from the beginning, barbecue is slow roasting, right? Yes, over, over, an, open, over an open fire outside. All right, and so the, 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 the argument always, one of the arguments is where did it start? I mean, many people look at this as the Arawak Indians and the Arawak Native people and others when the Spanish stumbled on to Hispaniola, what they called Hispaniola, mm-hmm. and they discovered this way of, 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 uh, 
of of making meat. Right? Is that so, Well, I I'm a little bit okay, so here's my problem. Go ahead. Um the people of people in Native America, meaning the the islands, the continents, um there there are different styles of doing things and eating and cooking. Um within the first 50 years of Columbus's arrival, the majority of these people are gone. Wiped out the face of the earth. So the question is, at what point in time were the Spanish sat down for a cooking lesson? Well, was a cooking lesson? Was it something that they, that they, I mean, are you saying that's not how it started? Um, so what happens in 1492, Mark? Pardon? What happened in 1492? This is when Columbus stumbled onto what he thought was another world. There you go. What happened in 1502? Um, the first black people are brought from West Africa. Exactly, right. And, by the way, they had already been there. They, the Native Americans told Columbus, hey, remember those, those black guys? He said, what black guys? The ones that were here before you were. And kind of opens, drops his mouth and goes, wait, 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 what? And remember, Ivan Van Sertima struggled to prove this for years. Um, sort of got a little bit of a mainstream response. But what I'm, the point I'm making is that the engagement of Africans in this process has been largely wiped out. Um, there's a lot of attribution to Native Americans, but these are the Native Americans who really get the brute and brutal force, the brunt force of this sort of invasion from the old world head on. Um, they're, they're struggling to survive. They're dying in droves. They're not sitting around teaching Spanish conquistadors how to cook. And what they're gleaning from this is the bare minimum. Remember, these are the people who they persecuted. The barbacoa was what the Spanish claimed the Carib um, were roasting human beings on. Remember that? The term cannibal comes from the term Carib. Right. So they, they, they were using this as a polemic to say, these people need Jesus. We need to save them from the because they're cooking human beings slowly over a grill. That's why they need us to come in and ex, to either exterminate them or bring their souls to God. But on the link, so re- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Michael. Finish. So what they really wanted to do, this is this is not as simple as they make it sound. They, these articles online and some of these books make it sound like this was a, this was a Colombian exchange. It was far from it. It was a brutal. Um, engagement between two cultures that were completely alien to each other. Remember, that, that, that first 10 years, without well, I mean, 10 years, within a year or two, they're already fighting. They're fighting tooth and nail. Right. They're not, this, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't um, some pleasant um, wife swap, you know, on ABC, where, oh, you do it this way, I do it this way. No, that, that, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> but what I guess I'm saying is when when you in your article, one of the links you have um, that, you know, and it, it highlights there is is to, is, is the uh, to the online uh, etymology dictionary mm-hmm. where it defines the word barbecue. And as a is in 1650s, a framework for grilling meat, fish from American Spanish barbacoa from the Arawakan uh, barba, uh, uh, barbacoa framing of sticks. I mean that that 
So I, I know that I, I mean I know the history of 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 uh, what happened to the native people in in what we call the West Indies. Um, but that but are you just I mean and I've just finished reading these articles from other native uh, uh, culinary people saying we this was ours in the beginning. So everybody wants to claim ours. I mean, are we saying in in that that there were the native roots were not there for barbecue? We're saying the native roots were there, but how they got to us wasn't so simple. And we're also saying that the native roots weren't the only roots of this tradition. Because I have said this frequently. David Dalby was the first one to point this out, not Michael Twitty. Uh-huh. David Dalby said, if you look at the, some of the words in black English, you will find African antecedents. One of those words, he looked at Uncle Remus and said, these folk tales that they, you know, you're reading are really from northern Nigeria. They're Hausa tales. These aren't just from any African group. They're from Hausa, which is one of the major languages of West Africa. In fact, many of the people who were involved in Boko Haram, some of them are Hausa, the Hausa ethnic group. Right. Um, and they live in northern Nigeria where the Fulani range their cattle. And, of course, cattle, goats, sheep all get babakid. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they have a word. Barbecue. You see, he's like, why does all Greens keep talking about barbecue? Barbecue. And he looked at it and he said, there's a word in Hausa. It sounds just like that. It means the exact same thing. And it's not from the Spanish or Europeans coming in. It's an indigenous word and concept that, you know, you roast meat on a spit or over a grill framework or in the ground over sticks, and it's called babake. It means to grill, it means to toast, it means to roast, it means you change, keep changing the tone of the word, it means to use up, um, it means to build an extravagant big fire for cooking, it means to singe, it means to use up a lot of wood, all of which are part of the complex of ideas involved in cooking barbecue. So my point in my article was that an ancient African and ancient Native American tradition came together and were twice as strong when they were being used by maroon communities of the remainder of the Carib and Arawak people, or Taino people, against European enslavement and encroachment. That is what my point was, is that it wasn't one people. It was everybody. Um, There are certainly European elements in this tradition. No question about it. But if you wipe out the African and black part of it, and people's, people, Mark, people's real attitudes about Africa and Africans came through in their comments. Because, you know, oh, yes. if I may, be, I may be really, can I be really honest with you? As long as you don't say any curse words, you can be as honest as you like. I won't say any <laughs> curse words. But the idea here was that Negroes really needed this job program called slavery. Mm-hmm. People still believe that we were these primitive know-nothings that were just, we're, we're absolute machine work now. We were the machine work of barbecue, sure. You can tell some old uncle, you know what that means, some mm-hmm. old uncle to cook some barbecue because you had a whip in your hand and you could dictate the recipe to him. But it really wasn't uncle doing it. It was Master telling him so. And that's the image and that's the idea that we got for years, which was white over overseer, black cook. You know, or Missy at the door with the recipe and the black woman cooking it. The Missy, the Missy wasn't in that damn kitchen. Massa wasn't saying over there. Cook, they, they, the antebellum and colonial writers tell us that the black cook was like a dictator. They, they knew what was up, and they didn't want anybody in their space. They, they could do this on their own. 
So we have to think about black people as translators of Native culture because we, you and I both know there were black Indians from the time of the West Indies in South America to North America. And um, we both know that maroon communities were communities of runaway or freedom-seeking enslaved people mm-hmm. who lived sustainably on their own in the wilderness. How do you do that? What are the skills that you need to do that? Um, jerk, jerking does not come out of just any tradition in Jamaica. Jerking comes out of the fact that Native and Africans combined together in communities of, of resistance to slavery and encroaching upon Native land. That's from the, from the get-go, from the very start and the very beginning. So if you leave that part of the history of barbecue out of the story, what you're essentially doing is um, whitewashing, or should I say white saucing, <laughs> um, an incredibly um, powerful part of how barbecue is freedom food. And that, let's, let's explore that for a moment. I mean, one of the things you deposit here is that this is the real independent food. This is the true f- mm-hmm. food of, of American independence. Uh, uh, independence Day food is what you write. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this line here where you say, European Americans acclimated themselves to the custom of forsaking utensils, even plates to eat more like enslaved Africans and Native Americans, from spare ribs to corn on the cob. They used their hands in, un- in an unprecedented break, unprecedented break with old world, from- old world formalities. Right. So, now, the question is, why did I say that? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Why did you say that? <laughs> I said it because, first of all, people need to realize something. We would just be watered-down Europeans if it was not for Africa and Native America, and then the influence of other parts of the world outside of the strict West. Um, we de- people here declared cultural independence from the old world, from their old world, their Europe, when they acclimated themselves more to the ways of the people who were already here. You know, people who, de Tocqueville, Dickens, when they write about the American character, they're very keen on the fact that these people are not copycats of Europeans. They are being changed by the fact that they are in close proximity to red and black people. They're not... There's something different about these people. They're mixing with them genetically. They're mixing with them culturally. They're mixing with them in terms of conflict. And also the way they see themselves, understand themselves, is in relationship to these people. Um, you know, the, the Boston um, Tea Party doesn't happen without the mocking of Native Americans. The Boston Massacre doesn't happen without a black man dying. You can't get away from us. That's cause not just a black man but a black man who was half Native and half black, half African. So you can't get away from our history. We're always there. Um, But I'm also saying that I think some people got very angry about this piece, Mark, quite frankly, because they can only see the struggle for American freedom and independence as a white man's struggle. I think that I think it, that's true, and I and I think the, you could see it especially. And I, I read the comments, <clears throat> many of the comments that were written under your article of, in the in the comment section in the Guardian, um, and they were pretty. I mean, people are very upset about this, saying that you others people are trying to take away their real heritage. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I mean that that's mm-hmm. the, that, that, that that and that's the sense of the critique of this. But I think when you take it through the lens, your lens, this this kind of. This this culinary lens, 
of who we are as a people. And you and I and I'm, I always read the history of barbecue, and it was always a very southern white experience. Most of the stuff you read, right? Mm-hmm. With a little, with a little, um, little uh, pay on to native people who they first adopted it from. Mm-hmm. And black people, they forced to cook it. Exactly right. Exactly, which is on a lot of nineteenth, eighteenth century engravings, um, and wood carvings, and uh, wood engravings, I should say. So, so. Let, let's talk a bit about the, 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 culinary, the, the culinary history of this, of this style of food. And I've been saying this a lot to a lot of people on my show recently and really wrestling with this idea that we as Americans have to begin to understand we are an Afro-Indio-Euro nation. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And, and, and to create a new, a new person for this 21st century, understanding that. Let's, can we play with that for a minute and understand barbecue oh. through that lens? Absolutely. So, if you so when I was growing up, every book, every history book began with the first white man to. <laughs> That's what I grew. I mean, I was I mean, right, I was the last right, generation. Right. Do that in every textbook. The first white man to see. The first white man to do. As if nobody else did anything before him. And then there is the area of American culture comes out of Europe. We are English speaking. We are this. We are that. Um. And it's, that's totally not the way it happened. Why can't... It's like food genealogy, okay? Culinary genealogy. Why can't we understand Africa? As not... I mean, if for America, Africa's important. But for the South, Africa is the mother. The mother of the South is Africa. West, Central, and Southeastern Africa is the mother of Southern culture. Point blank. No question. The daddy may be white with an Indian granddaddy, but the mama black. <laughs> and that's all that you need to know. We, we, we're, not, we're not debating this any further because we know this. We know this. We know this from every inch of Mark Twain. We know this from every second that Dickens spent walking around the South Carolina low country. We know this. So let's take it back for a second. We have Piri Piri, right? People be going to Nando's talking about the Portuguese. All the Portuguese did was drop off a red pepper in Africa. And by the way, it's called bird's pepper or bird's eye pepper. You know why? Or bird's eye pepper. Because the birds were the ones who spread the pepper around. They ate the the, the birds, the the pepper pepper fruit is actually sweet. And so they took it and just, you know, distributed it naturally, shall we say, (laughs) across the West African environment. And people were like, okay, this is cool. This This is actually a useful plant. The Portuguese only brought it to the coast. Um, but, they, but you see the, the people claiming at Nando's, well, this is our Portuguese forefathers, created this peri-peri tradition. No, 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 no. People in Angola and Mozambique, Africans were used to eating spicy food and roasting it in that barbaco, that babake, excuse me, that babake fashion, were making the peri-peri, the sauce and all, the spicy sauce, the rub meat, all of that. And furthermore, the peppers actually keep out the fly, the, the, some of the insects from trying to burrow in the meat. And that's still a technique that was used on southern farms when you we preserved hams and bacon and such. They always red, rubbed red pepper in to keep the skipper fly out. So there are all sorts of layers to this. But if you go to northern Nigeria, they call it suya. And suya is you take this rub of spices and you grill and roast and, and babake, you barbecue the food over um, a quick fire. They call it nyama choma in East Africa, roasted meat. 
So all over the continent, there's these traditions. Or the Bravles in um, the Braai in South Africa, which the Afrikaners have said, this is ours, even though, who did they take it from? The native people who were already there. They, the Afrikaners did not come up with the, with the, with the Braai, the traditional South African barbecue. They brought the sausage as part of that. But the other meat that's involved, the cooking method, it comes from the Zulu. It comes from the native people of South Africa. It comes from the Kosai. It comes from the 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 so-called the the San, the so-called Bushmen. It doesn't come from you know white people from the Netherlands. I mean, who who by the way really did not bring much of their own to this equation. The, the food of South Africa is incredibly African, Indonesian, Malaysian, um, it, long before it's Dutch. Um, so. We're already you can you don't have to leave the continent, Mark, before you have people who are European claiming that these food traditions are theirs. So, well, let's talk where we are with this part and work backwards for a moment. So we have, I mean, the, the, clearly barbecue is 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 in today's world associated with a pig, for the most part. But it's also yeah. goat and lamb and every damn thing you want to cook with it, chicken, mm-hmm. cow, whatever it is. And even vegetables now, um, right? So, so, but, but, clearly, the pig was introduced by Spaniards. They got wild, uh, right. and, and were across the south and were used as, as, as a major food staple. So, and then we, now we've come to a place in America. Where we have these kind of four styles of barbecue, right? Carolina, mm-hmm. Memphis, Kansas City, and Texas. At least those mm-hmm. are the ones that I know about. That are they're the four main ones. So, so how about let's let's can we look at that through your lens? That lens of of how we define today's barbecue for, from its history. Well, I think one thing you need to keep in mind is that a lot of those styles are quite recent. Right I mean, from the seventeenth century. From, excuse me, from the <laughs> the sixteenth century. And by the way, don't don't forget to tell your listeners where I started this history. Fifteen twenty six. Fifteen twenty six, in what is now South Carolina. The Spanish try to settle North America permanently. They bring enslaved Africans with them. The enslaved Africans rebel. They win. The first true independence, the first non-native settlers of North America, African people. And they bring with them humans and animals. So you know what's going to happen next. So let's start there. But for the first three centuries, it's, it's actually very simple. The, the, well, these styles you're talking about are actually based on more based on sauce than anything else. We uh-huh. don't really know when this whole mustard sauce thing happened, but we know the vinegar and the hot pepper is from the get-go. And one of the number one peoples that crossed the Atlantic in the set, remember something, who crossed the Atlantic more than anybody else in the first few centuries of American history? Enslaved Africans. The right. first Africans who cross the Atlantic and become part of these early southern communities are mainly from Central Africa. And in my research, reading about the food, and this is what people don't do, Mark. They don't know the history. They don't know African anything. They simply don't know African history and colonial history before, you know, um, the modern period or even 1884. They don't, they've never read any of this stuff. They don't read the narratives that talk about the natives like to roast the food with vinegar and hot pepper. Well, who does that sound like? North Carolina and Virginia. And who were the first people, African people, enslaved in Virginia? 
they were from Angola. And the Portuguese had already engaged with them. There was already a mixture of culture there. There were, there were even native people who crossed from South America to Angola. So we're, our whole perspective on that history is kind of flawed. But, of course, as time goes on, people are moving across the South. I wonder why. The, the article on Barbecue for the Smithsonian doesn't even talk about the fact the only reason they're moving across the South is because of what? The spread of cotton. Right. And the spread of slavery. And as they spread across the South, black people are brought from different parts of the eastern seaboard and the lower Mississippi Valley into the southern hinterland, moving up to Mississippi and moving out towards Texas. And each, one, each community has a different history. So we're basing our history on what white people do, the decisions that white men make. But we're not basing our history in the cooks that actually made the food and where they're coming from and their experience and who they were. You know, and they in the, a lot of these communities in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in South Carolina, they were the majority. They were not some side dish to white people's main dish. They were the majority. So we have to understand the history in that in that light. So I would be interested in, to think about how you take this um, conversation, make it broader, and, and and actually do it from the barbecue pit out. You know, I mean, for people to <laughs> for people to really understand what these origins do, what the story tells us, mm-hmm. you know, and and you know, of this food that that most Americans just adore, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that adoration of this truly American food, what's become a truly American food. I mean, and, and, and to, to, to tell so people know what we're consuming. I mean, when we're consuming this food, it's got to be like we're consuming culture, right? Consuming history, which we, have, which we have no problem, Mark, doing. Anytime we have a fine wine, right? You want to know where the wine came from? It's terroir. What, what soil it grew in? What region? Why it's important to that region? These questions never get asked when it's the food that came from the hands of enslaved Africans, right? We should want to know. Um, let me sort of answer your question mid-sentence. Sure, no, go ahead, man. When I do these demonstrations, mm-hmm. when I actually, there's a reason why I put out a lot of pictures on the Internet of me doing this, because nobody else has. There are fantastic black barbecue pit masters that are out there, but you don't see them on barbecue, the, the, the barbecue competition shows on cable. But... What I'm doing is that that sort of old method. When people say a pit barbecue, they don't understand. That pit barbecue really is you dig a hole, you put green wood of sticks over top of it, and you slowly smoke and cook and roast that roast that meat. Do we actually do that? We cut the we cut trees down, cut uh, non toxic, you know, indigenous trees down, green wood. We put smoking wood in the fire along with good, solid oak and hickory, and cook heritage breed meat, not the meat you get at the store, the meat from animals that would have closely matched the type of um, domesticated um, meat you would have found in that time period. And I put the clothes of an enslaved man to cook on, 19th or, or 18th century, and I cooked the food using historical recipes. 
and descriptions mm-hmm. based on people who wore the shoe. My favorite barbecue to do, my brother, is the one from directly from the WPA slave narratives from a black man who lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina, who himself, that was his whole job, was to go around cooking barbecue for white political rallies. That was his job as an enslaved man. And he tells you what he put into his sauce, how he rubbed the meat, how he cooked the meat. And he's not the only one. There are multiple others in the narrative and other sources that are telling you what the process is or telling you how barbecue looked in this period between, let's say, 1780 and 1860. And they're always pointing the finger at who? Enslaved African-American men who are these geniuses, these, these, these master chefs. And so when I do this, people's attitudes change because they're confronted with the reality of, I own this, I embrace this. All of this history, all these layers put together, and it's okay. You know, I know my white roots. Do you know your black roots? Mm -hmm. That's the question I ask them. You know, I've had to confront the fact that I am genetically part, part European, that I'm culturally far more Western than my African ancestors ever would be. Um, all of those things put together. But I can't be the only one here having a crisis of identity. And, and exactly. And I think that, that, is the, that is the lesson that we have to learn from all of this. And I, and I think that, that as I, I said, this is, fits into the scenario I've been building over these last year, this question of our, uh, whether it's culinary or otherwise, our, our Afro-Indo-Euro heritage, who we are mm-hmm. as a people. Um, right. and begin to recognize who we are as a people. Um, so before we have to run, Mike, uh, Twitty, uh, Michael Twitty, could you give us some... Um, so what is your... Fa- t- t- just to our listeners have it as we go, what is your favorite barbecue? How do you make that? Can you Alabama. It's a mixture of Alabama and South Carolina, and it's based on the fact that my family, and my mother's family ended up in Alabama, and my father's father's family stayed in South Carolina. And so I tend to do a mixture. First of all, I don't believe in cooking meat so long that it, they say it falls off the bone. That's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> because it shouldn't. It should really be. You should be able to take a rib around with you and walk around with it and bite off of it <laughs> when you need to. That's, that's essential. That's essential. And I really love the love different versions of mustard sauce in South Carolina. A lot of people like funky food. I don't like. I like food that looks, tastes, and smells delicious. I mean, it should look, you should want to marry it, not just want to sleep with it. <laughs> and so, I mean, I use brown mustard for my mustard. So people are people going, oh, no, you got to choose the yellow hot dog. I don't like that. I use brown mustard, and I use sorghum molasses and hot pepper, and I make it work. I make it taste good. Mm. Um, and sometimes I do the original antebellum sauce, um, and I'll dock it with either mustard or tomato. And that's me playing with it. It's, it's not... It's not totally accurate. Totally accurate would be just using vinegar, hot pepper, the other spices, and butter. That's the that's the real deal, antebellum, straight up historical barbecue sauce. And then people started adding mustard to it in South Carolina and Georgia, probably from um, some German and French roots there. But um, you know, the hand that was stirred in that pot was still was still of color. First, let me just say, I always appreciate that you help us find our roots so we can understand our present to redefine our future. Michael Twitty, culinary historian of African and African-American foodways, 
blogger at Afroculinaria will be linking to the Afroculinaria and also linking to his article in The Guardian so you can read more and think about this. Michael, thank you so much for being with us here on Mark Steiner's show on the Soundbites. Thank you, sir. You're listening to Soundbites, a weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We have to take a very short break, but don't go away. We'll be right back. On the way to break, we're hearing Purple Haze by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Mitch Mitchell of the Jimi Hendrix Experience was born on this day in 1947. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future on The Mark Steiner Show. I'm your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. And that's Never Ending Math Equation by Modest Mouse. Isaac Brock of Modest Mouse was born on this day in 1975. Last month, the Department of Consumer Affairs announced they were investigating Whole Foods for suspected price gouging and tinkering with weights and measurements of prepackaged foods. Last week, Whole Foods co-CEOs John Mackey and Walter Robb apologized for overcharging their customers, but suggested that the miscalculations weren't intentional and sometimes worked in the customer's favor. We're about to have a conversation with Denzel Mitchell, who's a longtime organic farmer who founded Five Seeds Farm that operated in Baltimore City and County. Joins us here on Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show to talk about organic farming and uh, issues around Whole Foods and more. And Denzel, it's good to see you. It's been a long time since you've been in the studio. Welcome. I know, man. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, brother. Good to have you back. Yeah, yeah it's good to see you. Good to be seen. So when I first saw the uh, the article, I don't want to get people upset with me here, but when I first saw the article <laughs> about Whole Foods uh, overcharging, mm. <laughs> Is that news? <laughs> right, exactly. Right, right. Uh, and, and the, I mean, people always joke and call it a whole paycheck, right? Whole paycheck, yep. yep. So, what, what, what are your. I mean, you've been reading these articles and probably not shopping there as much as you. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, you know, I never really had sometimes, to shop. I go there sometimes. Sometimes. I, I will tell you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I the other day. You run in there, get a bottle of water or some chewing gum or something. You know, I try not to, I try not to buy too much food in there. I, I want to support local farmers and, you know, if I can't grow it myself, I try to get it from somebody else. Um. Yeah, but like you said, you know, you, you know, there's this huge gap because you you go into uh, the local giant or Safeway or something like that, and you know, you see apples at dollar twenty nine a pound, and then you go over to Whole Foods and dollar seventy nine, dollar ninety nine look like the exact same apples. You know, the the uh, thing with Whole Foods is they have this rating system. Um, and they rate the produce based. Um, by good, better, or best, right? And the issue for organic farmers is that um, the even though they're growing the food organically, so it's the the best possible food raised with the best um, possible ecological practices. If another farmer is maybe has some sophisticated recycling program, um, they're making their own compost on farm. They're using alternative forms of energy. Um, or they're able to pay their workers incredibly well, or you know, some you know, there's a bunch of different markers. Then Whole Foods will automatically give the produce from that farm a higher rating. Um, but what the customer doesn't understand, and oftentimes what they don't look at, right, 
is that this that this produce was raised better. It's organic, right? whereas opposed to this farm might have better practices or create uh, a more desirable working environment, but the but produce isn't necessarily better, or there's pesticide on the produce. Um, and so, you know, this is the power of marketing, right? You know, we go to business school to, uh, you know, use the bait and switch to get customers to buy this uh, versus versus that. So it was really problematic. Um, you know, I feel like at the end of the day, like you said, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised. We got to remember that Whole Foods is a big corporation that operates all over the country. And at the end of the day, you know, despite all the the great talk, you know, their their job is to make money. They want to be profitable. And so, um, you know, they're going to use their power. They're going to use their voice to make as much money as possible. And so we as consumers, as we've always said, I've heard you say on this show dozens of times, and I've said that we have to be discerning consumers and we have to ask the questions. We have to read the labels, right? It's like the Jesus said, you got to read the labels, got to read the labels. Um, and we just don't do that as customers, you know. And as consumers, we often are comfortable in our ignorance in being uninformed and that's just you know the thing for me this information about whole foods uh says that this just is not we can't we can't accept that anymore so do, if i go to whole foods do i see the rating system you can see it yeah uh i can't remember what it's called it's, i haven't uh, noticed this is why i'm asking i haven't noticed at all but i've gone in there yeah yeah because they do the same thing with the meat actually the meat the meat rating system is is more recent and it's a little bit more prominent and it's uh it's like a one through five but with the produce um i I can't remember what the name is it's said in one of the articles <clears throat> maybe maybe we can find it um yeah they rate good good better or best and and uh specifically organic farmers um in California organized to write an open letter to uh John Mackey saying that this is unfair. You know, who's the president of Whole Foods? Who's the president, president co-founder of Whole Foods? Um, saying that this is unfair. You know, this is, this is not right because you're not fully informing the consumer. And, you know, a lot of people make the argument that, well, you know, we're not interested in all that information at that time. I'm just trying to buy my apples. I'm just trying to buy my potatoes. Um, but the farmer makes a good point that um, if the consumer wants organic produce and you're saying that this produce is best then i think a lot of people make the connection that this produce is organic just off off top because it's it's uh categorized as best so, so i mean the, the overcharging thing was pretty when i read about it the overcharges uh, said one article in that in, in money cnn's magazine on mm-hmm. on web was saying that uh, that overcharging 80 cents for a package of pecan panko to fourteen eighty four for a package of coconut shrimp, mm-hmm. um, veggie platters at twenty dollars per package were priced by two fifty. Uh, chicken tenders uh, four thirteen a package, overpriced by that much. Berries going for eight dollars fifty eight cents were overpriced on an average by a dollar and fifteen cents. Right. Um, that that's really serious money. Yeah, that's serious money. And you think that though that what's odd about that to me, <clears throat> that I've always felt the prices were high there, mm-hmm. even for organic food. Right. Which are higher to start with, right? Right. In this in this marketplace, but the but they are a chain. So there was always a joke uh, among my, some of my cousins and uncles growing up. Is you know when they would say, um, "How do 
how do we keep the prices low? Volume. And because they sold <laughs> lots so they can yeah. – that's the whole nature of having a larger system is the more you bring in, the less expensive you can charge things right. and still make a profit, which right. is why this – This is what right? they taught us in economics class, right? That's, that's what I thought. Um, it, which is interesting because, um, you know, although Whole Foods is buying tons of organic produce, so is Costco, so is Walmart. Right, they're buying around about the same numbers. I think it's four billion versus three point six billion dollars of organic produce. So, right. So then the question becomes, why? How is it that Whole Foods is charging more for produce? Um, and then you know that kind of gets into the conversation about demographics, like who's shopping in Whole Foods, right? Where are the Whole Foods located? I mean, ain't no Whole Foods in the hoods in any city I've been in. So you know they're overcharging. Are they overcharging people that they think can pay for it because they're already in there, you know, because it's in the suburbs, it's in these center cities, center cities, not inner cities? Um, you know, that's a that's a big question, I, you know, and, and I don't really understand the economics of that. Um, and and it may, in some ways, the organic farmers are between a rock and a hard place because they have to sell their produce. They do have to sell their produce. And that only, so, I guess, more and more stores, whether it's, Wegmans or whether it's even Giant or some of the other popular supermarkets or Walmart, they're all buying organic food now. They are. Yeah, they are. There's a there's a much higher demand for organic foods. Um, one thing I've always heard from farmers who have tried to work with Whole Foods directly in this area mm-hmm. is that Whole Foods nickel and dimes the farmers, though. So, you know, they, they, they want to buy from the farmers that have pretty at, at high volumes at a fairly low price point but then the farmers go into the store and they're selling the local tomatoes at the same price or at the same price or if not higher than the tomatoes that they're buying in much larger volumes say from California or Florida or something like that um so you know there begs an ethical question here about you know business business ethics and and um and you know profit being the bottom line but I mean, the, the New York Office of of, uh, of Consumer Affairs, DCA, it mm-hmm. pointed out that a lot of supermarkets are doing this. One, one of the subtitles for one of their pieces in the paper uh, was uh, "Watch the scale at the deli and make sure they take the ice off your fish." You know, I mean, and weigh it yourself because this is happening in more than one place. Right, 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 right. Put the finger on the put the. Thumb on the on the meat scale, <laughs> right? Right. Why they weighing your meat? Um, you didn't do that with my broccoli, did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about broccoli right now. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, even still, um, that but that even still that doesn't. So one one issue was they were talking about prepackaged foods, right? And these prepackaged foods, saying like you're buying like a a salad that's supposed to weigh a half a pound or whatever, and the salad ends up weighing a quarter of a pound. And so, between eight salads that they tested, they they it, it was a twenty dollar price gouging, uh, right? Uh, profit. Um, I mean, you know, I, I <clears throat> you you know, this it's it's a tough issue because you know this this really throws in the question the trust that people have in in uh business bin, business transactions and it's like man you can't trust you can't f- trust your food purveyor 
right? This most most important purchase you make every day. Who can you trust? Um. So you know, I you know, I don't know. You know, yeah, you should weigh you you weigh your own food. Um. You know, but but at the same time, you know, we're conditioned to be this, to live in this society of convenience and 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 quick fixes and quick quick meals. So everything is coming prepackaged, right? You know, um, companies like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Safeway, they spend tons of money um, paying people to pre-process your food, you know, peel and cut up your pineapples, um, uh, your, your watermelon, make your mirepoix. Um, make your what? Mirepoix. That's a, that's hoity-toity word for uh, uh, onion, celery, and okay. carrots. You know, the mirepoix. Mirepoix, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's basis of, of, of a lot of French sauces. Um because people don't want to do it. You know, they want to cook at home. They want to have this healthy meal, but they don't want to spend that extra 20 minutes, half an hour to prepare the food. And I've always, you know, if you're ever in the grocery store with el- with the elderly, with older folks, you know, you'll hear them talking about, I can cut up the pineapple myself. I don't need to spend $4.55. <laughs> right, which makes sense. You know, but that's, you know, but that's kind of, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's their... That's kind of their framework, you know, whereas, you know, a 25-year-old a is going to come in or a 35-year-old with a few kids tra- trailing behind him. Be like, the kids want pineapple. I don't have time to cut pineapple up. So I'm going to just buy, buy pre-cut and not ask any questions, you know. Um, so, I, you know, it's de- definitely time for us to start asking questions about this. Um, you know, maybe it's time to uh, start boy- boycotting Whole Foods. Well, yeah. Well, that's an area we do not go. In. I can't go in on the show. <laughs> um, but I, I think I know. I, I think that there's a there's an issue about where how and where people get their food. And yeah. I mean, you know, I was when I was at the a farmers market the other other week, uh, where I buy a lot of my vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, I was walking, you know, walking through and seeing the prices. Um, I was seeing the prices I saw at Whole Foods. I went to Whole Foods the other day and. Because I was looking for a particular juice, so they only they are the only ones who carry it mm-hmm. that I like that I found in New York, and I was trying to find it again. So I I went there to look for it, and um, and what what uh, struck me was when I looked at this thing when a, a, a thing of berries was like eight bucks, nine bucks. Whatever. Yeah, that's crazy. I said, I'm not. that's that's bananas. But but so 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 it, it's it, the whole question of pricing and food, right? Is 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 an issue unto itself. I mean. Because when you even when you go to farmers markets and buy stuff from people, they can the, the the amounts are like huge. And the question is, yes, there's labor involved, right? And it's a small farm, a small business, so they have to make some profit on the work they're right. doing to bring the money back after all the work they do, mm-hmm. ten, twelve hours a day in the fields and getting food ready and washing the lettuce and doing whatever else people do to package it. Right, 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 right. right. But I think that I think that again we've talked about this before is this trying to evaluate value what is the true cost. Of the food you buy and consume, right, right, yes, and we haven't been able to answer the question yet because it is easier for a highly mechanized farmer with uh, once that farmer gets to the place where they're producing at an economy of scale and they have level of mechanization to lower the cost of production, and they have the volume to justify charging at that price point to get it to sell right. it wholesale to get it in the grocery stores um you can you know that's something that you can get behind 
But then at the same time, you've got the small farm, you know, husband and wife, maybe one or two employees that are producing the exact same food using more or less the same practices, but very little to no mechanization and needing to charge, needing to charge more money in order to cover to cover those production costs. Um, and most people not really understanding the difference, right? You know, folks can look at heads of lettuce and they all look the same. They're the same variety. And they're like, well, you know, they all should cost the same to produce. They don't, unfortunately. Um, that's one issue. So, you know, so it's, it's about education and relationships. Um, but then the other piece is, you know, we as Americans don't spend what other people globally spend on food. You know, we spend a, an incredibly sm- smaller amount of money per, per capita per person for food. So our food costs are cheap, although that's, you know, that's really difficult to, to translate, you know, because people feel like we spend, we still spend a lot and we don't. Um, so, I mean, in order to support those small farms, you know, I, I've always been an advocate that we need more so that the supply will, there's, the, there's more supply in the food chain, which will, um, which will kind of meet the demand and then everybody can, can afford to drop their prices because they can produce more, they can produce more and actually move it. So w- when the uprising occurred around Freddie Gray, there was this movement that began around again around Whole Foods mm-hmm. and you were kind of at the heart of that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was checking my Twitter feed as as many people were. Um, just, you know, making sure I knew what was happening in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, um, and there was a conversation from some local food businesses during the curfew, because I know a lot of a lot of food businesses were losing money, um, that they would feed National Guard and uh, police officers if they, you know, if they came in in uniform. And then there was a lot of talk about, uh, um, well, there's no school today also. So there's, you know, 80, what is it, 80, eight, something like 80% of uh, Baltimore City public school kids are on free and reduced meals. So, you know, out of 86,000, it's a few thousand kids. And so the conversation started amongst a lot of folks about, you know, you feeding, we're already feeding the police and National Guard with our tax dollars. You know, these are these are adults who have paying jobs that, that we are paying for. Not to mention that these are the same folks that are um, oppressing and controlling and controlling us in our city. Meanwhile, you know, our children, who we have all this rhetoric for about being the most important citizens in our society, are not being fed. Um, and so there was there was a lot of a lot of talk. There were folks in the city that then started to organize to feed the kids. I know uh, uh, Pastor Heber Brown, who's been on the show a number of times, right? But, um, started a, a lunch campaign. I know Baltimore Block was doing some work. Um, but, I mean, I think it's just it's really problematic. Um, and it's also very telling um, when these these businesses that are that are in Baltimore City 
that say they support the people, you know, kind of make these moves. You know, this is not something that Baltimore, that um, Whole Foods was directed to do. You know, this was a decision that they chose to make. Um, and, it, you know, and it just kind of throws throws into question, you know, why is it that, you know, the, the military presence that's in the city can walk in and get free food? Um, you know, but there's homeless folks walking around here. There's homeless veterans, you know, walking around in the city. There's kids right. walking around here. And meanwhile, any other time of the year, Whole Foods or any other businesses throwing food, throwing food out. Um, so I that was uh, that I really appreciated the conversation around that. And specifically in in the midst of that conversation, uh, there was an article that circulate, circulated about supporting local farms. And I appreciated that, too. So I don't know who wrote it. I don't know where it came from. Who, whoever it was, if you're listening to the show, you know, thank you. Uh, but part of that is also the dearth of, not of well, there's a lot of local farms, which I think is really good and very strong. But there's a dearth of local of, of black-owned and controlled local farms. Yes, yes, and, and black-owned and controlled farms are um, in rare are, are, are a rarity, um, and so whenever we come across those, we need to to support them. Well, I, this is a continuing conversation we, we we should have just about where the future of farming is going, and and I look forward to uh, having you join us on a frequent basis, just talking about your editorial observations on where we are with food and farming and in our world. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I got a lot to share, and um, you know, I've had had a little bit of experience. Just yeah, you have a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Denzel Mitchell is a longtime organic farmer who founded Five Seeds Farm in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. Uh, joining us here in the studio at Soundbites, the Mark Steiner Show, for what will be a continuing commentary from our friend Denzel. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.